listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. This episode covers the life of Christ and the Gospel of Luke. You can enjoy more messages like this with the free Courage Matters app, available in your app store. If you'd like to request Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event, click the Invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on CourageMatters.com. Jesus was either out of his mind or going out of his way to help us clearly understand by communicating the things he said and even the things he did at the right place, at the right time, to drive home the unforgettable teaching, the unforgettable message. This is a particular passage of scripture that we're going to look at, just two brief verses that you might be tempted to look at and just give a casual reading to them and then move on to the next chapter, next verse, and miss some of the significance that's absolutely mind-blowing. It's huge here. So you need to understand that Jesus always was deliberate in what he said. Jesus was always deliberate in where he said what he said. Jesus was always intentional to do the things that he did, where he did the things that he did, so that people who were there in the midst of what he said, in the midst of what he did, would be able to connect the dots. Either Jesus was out of his mind to do and to say the things he did in the way and in the places he did them, or he was going out of his way to help the people in his day and to help the people in our day, the people of every day, to understand and appreciate what he did, why he did it, and where he did it. Now, if you look with me in the book of Hebrews in chapter four, there's an important verse here that you do well to commit to memory, do well to understand its significance and its importance in Hebrews chapter four, verse 12, because you might be one of those people, and you probably aren't. If you come to this church, you probably aren't, but you might be one of those people, one of those Christians who reads the Bible once a week. The majority of Christians, no matter what your denomination, the majority of Christians tend to read the Bible once a week. But I want to whet your appetite. I want to help you understand from what we look at from God's word today that it's so rich, so deep, so amazing, so mind-blowing. There's so much there that you might actually be inclined. You actually might be tempted to read the Bible more than once a week. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 says this. For the word of God, this is a reference to the Bible, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. What you believe about God really is the single most important thing about you. Our lives are really a reflection of what we really believe about God. The things that we do are a reflection of what we really believe about God. And so if the word of God is living and active and it pierces right down to where we need it to connect, to the very core of our being, the very depths of who we are, then it's worth looking at in a deep way again and again and again. And this particular passage of scripture that we're going to look at in Luke chapter 21, beginning in verse 34 will convince you, I hope it will convince you, that the word of God is worth taking a continued, prolonged, repeated look into because that's where our thinking about God is transformed. And when our thinking about God is transformed, our entire lives change. So in Luke chapter 21, verse 34, look at what it says. 
But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. Jesus has been talking about the the way the world will be, the situation in the world right before his return and leading up to his return. He's been talking about the end times. And we've spent a good amount of time talking about the end times, the signs, the circumstances, the condition, the situation that the people in the world in that particular time will find themselves before Jesus returns. And Jesus does what he does so well. He does it all the time. He brings it from up here to down here so that you and I and the people in his day could get some meat and potatoes, understand what he was saying, and get on to the practical application, the practical implications of what He taught about his return. We know that his return is certain. He said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. There's greater certainty about the return of Jesus Christ than there is in the certainty of this world, the heavens and the earth continuing. They will come to an end. There will be a new heavens and a new earth. Revelation chapter 21 makes that very clear. But that's for another time and another place. It's at the end of Jesus' extensive teaching about the end times, what the world situation will be like before he returns, that he brings it down for you and for me and says, here's what I want you to do with what I just heard. Here's how I want you to live your life in light of what's going to happen in the world and in light of what I just said, in light of who I am. So in verse 34, he says, watch yourselves lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. And that day, meaning his return, that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth, but stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Again, Jesus' favorite title in reference to himself, the Son of Man from Daniel chapter 7. Jesus is making it clear that everybody, saved or lost, Christian or non-Christian, everyone will one day stand before the Son of Man who is Jesus. And we will stand before Jesus either before the judgment seat of Christ, which is a judgment of rewards for every believer, spoken of in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and elsewhere in the scriptures is a judgment of rewards. That's for the believer. We get rewarded for living faithfully, and we lose the rewards we would otherwise receive for living unfaithfully. And then there's the great white throne judgment found in Revelation chapter 20, which is a a judgment of damnation or salvation. If anybody's name is not found written in the book of life, you go into an eternity separate from God into the lake of fire. And yes, if you don't like that, it's good that you don't like that. You don't have to go there. Nobody has to go there. God loved you. God loves everybody so much that he gives us the way out. Suppose your house was on fire and the fire department comes and you're upstairs on the second level. 
and you cannot get out of your bedroom, you go over to the window and you open it up because you're fighting for your life, otherwise you're gonna die of asphyxiation, smoke inhalation, and you open up that window and you look down and there is the fire department, there's the fire engine there, and there's the chief of the fire department saying, don't worry about it, I've got this ladder, we're gonna bring that ladder right up to that window, and we're gonna help you get out of that out through that window onto the ladder and down, and you're gonna be safe. And you interrupt the mid-sentence and you say, no way, there ain't no way, I'm getting out of this window and climbing down that ladder. I want to go through my bedroom door. And the fire chief tries to debate and discuss with you until it's no use. You have your mind made up. Is the fire chief unloving because he wants to rescue you the one way? Is the fire chief being unreasonable because he's got the way to save you and you don't want to take it? Who's being unreasonable? Is the fire chief obligated to provide you with the way out, to provide me with any way out to risk his own life? For God so loved the world that he gave his one-of-a-kind, uniquely brought forth, only son with a capital S to die on a cross for the forgiveness of your sins. And there are many people who are trying to get into heaven apart from that escape clause. But Jesus said there is... No other way. The Bible makes it very clear. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. I know that there are people who don't like the idea of being in an eternity separated from God. That's good. You don't have to go there. Jesus is the fire chief. Jesus is the one who's extended the ladder and saying, come, I've provided a way. I have provided the only way. It's the sure way. It's the certain way. Everybody will appear one day before the Son of Man, Jesus, and be judged personally for what we did with him. And those of us who have given our lives to him, who have accepted his way out, Jesus, will experience a judgment of rewards. And then these two verses, verses 37 and 38, these are the verses that I want us to camp out on, the verses that I want us to zero in on. And these are verses that are a great example of we could, if we're not careful, read these verses and move on to chapter 21 saying, yeah, I got it, sounds good to me, and miss the intentionality of not only the writer of Luke's gospel, but also the intentionality of Jesus. Look with me, verse 37. And every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet, or the Mount of Olives. And early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. Now, we might think that this is something just to overlook. Jesus taught in the temple, and that's understandable if you're a Gentile. If you're not a Jewish person, you might look at a passage of Scripture like this, say, yeah, Jesus taught in the temple. Let's move on to chapter 22, and that's all I can make out of it. It doesn't make much more sense to me. And you might even be Jewish. And you might look at this and not give it a second thought, not give it a second glance. And that's the danger of giving a passage of Scripture, just a casual reading. The word of God is living and active and there are deep truths even in what might seem to be the most insignificant of all passages. And right now, you might be at a place where you look at verses 37 and 38 and you just dismiss them and say, yeah, Jesus taught in the temple, I get it, let's move on. But by the time we're done, I absolutely guarantee you will say, I had no idea that that is what was involved when Jesus was teaching in the temple. 
And not only that, you'll come to conclude that Jesus was either out of his mind or he was going out of his way to make sure that the people in his day and the people in any day, the people in our day, by the reading of this gospel, absolutely, positively connected the dots and understood the identity of Jesus Christ, the implications, ramifications, the significance of what he taught, where he taught it. There was a purpose in why Jesus went every day to the temple and taught and preached. And by the time we're done, you're going to say, isn't God? good. Isn't God amazing? And these two verses of scripture that you would otherwise think are insignificant and there's not much to them will actually end up putting some fuel in your spiritual furnace, firing you up for your walk with God. And they really will take you to a deeper, higher place. Look in verse 37. Every day he was teaching in the temple. But at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet or the Mount of Olives. This is not something that's insignificant for Jesus to be teaching in the temple area and then at night go to the Mount of Olives. This would have been a common practice even for rabbis, for the priest and the chief priest in the temple area. What they would do, oftentimes they would commute. They would live in the outskirts of Jerusalem or other parts of Jerusalem, and then they would make their way into the temple area. They would perform their their services, and then they would go home. And so this is not uncommon for Jesus to be teaching and preaching in the temple area and then to be retreating onto the Mount of Olives, which is very close by. And in fact, it makes perfect sense when we read chapter 22, verse 1, when it says, Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death for they feared the people. That becomes very important. They feared the people. They didn't like the competition that they were in with Jesus. They didn't like the fact that people were following Jesus and that's going to have tremendous significance as we go along here. But the idea is that the Feast of Unleavened Bread was drawing near and so there would have been travelers, sojourners, people who were going to participate in that. So you had to have lodging, you had to have a place to stay and Jesus chose to go to the Mount of Olives or the Mount called Olivet. So we see the historical significance of what Luke is conveying here. He's not giving an allegorical story. He's not being symbolic in this. He's actually, he actually wants his audience to take it literally. He actually wants people to actually believe that this took place. One of the things that Luke presents throughout his gospel is the idea that Jesus continually was teaching in the temple area. Look with me at Luke chapter 19, verse 45. When Jesus was in Jerusalem, his favorite place, his prioritized place to teach and to preach was in the temple grounds. It was right where the temple was, smack dab in the center. Jesus would intentionally position himself. He was either out of his mind to do so, or he was going out of his way to do so. In verse 45 of Luke 19, it says, As he, as Jesus, entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, 
My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. Now, Isaiah 53 helps us understand that there was nothing in Jesus' outward appearance that would make us stop and do a double take. It's not disrespectful to say that. It's actually biblical. There was nothing in his appearance that would make us sit up and take notice of Jesus' outward appearance. But there was something about the teaching of Jesus, something about the way he taught that caused people to hang on his every word, something when Jesus opened his mouth, people listened. People paid attention. And the chief priests And the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him because they didn't like that. Nobody, ain't nobody had a crowd like Jesus. Nobody could teach and preach the way Jesus did. And Jesus was intentionally going to the temple. He was doing that on purpose, intentionally performing the miraculous signs and wonders where he did them to drive home the point. And here it's significant that Luke mentions in chapter 19 that every day Jesus was in the temple. Look in verse 1 of chapter 20. One day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and scribes and the elders came up and said to him, tell us by what authority do you do these things? Or who is it that gave you this authority? See, what the chief priests, what the scribes, what the leaders of the people were upset with is what you would be upset with too. You'd be upset if this happened. Suppose it was a Sunday morning and I'm up here preaching and teaching the word of God and right through those doors, somebody comes, that comes in and comes down the center of the aisle, makes their way to the side of the platform. Security's not able to get them. They come up these steps, they make their way over here and they push me out of the way and say, hey, listen, Pastor Mike, I'm really tired about having to listen to you. In fact, I'm really not interested in hearing what you have to say. I would like to teach and preach. Well, not only would that hurt my feelings, and yours too, you would probably be sitting there as well and saying, hey, who is this clown? Who is this guy or this gal that thinks that they can come into my church and walk down the aisle and get up onto the platform, push my pastor out of the way and and want to teach and preach in his place? Well, can you imagine that insulting feeling that you would have? Can you imagine how upset you would be, the consternation that you would have being a thousand times greater if you were a chief priest or a priest or an elder or a leader in the nation of Israel and somebody who was not authorized as a priest or a chief priest or an official rabbi who had not gone through the official rabbinical school who was not ordained, anointed and appointed as a priest to come into the temple area where you teach and where you preach and where you minister and to say I'm going to do what you're not doing too well. And instead of the people, the Jewish people being upset with that Hold on here. You're getting a crowd, and the people are hanging on your every word. That's a big problem for Jesus, son of Mary and Joseph. Isn't he the carpenter's son? Isn't he 
Somebody who has not gone through the official means of having a position of authority every day. Jesus is in that temple area teaching and preaching. He would have to be out of his mind unless he was going out of his way. See, what we have here is the chief priests and the priests and the scribes being upset with the real chief priest and the real scribe, Jesus. Look with me at the book of Hebrews chapter 4 in verse 14, verse 15, and verse 16. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, meaning to our faith in Jesus. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. That's massive in reference to Jesus. Tempted every way that you are tempted, every way that I am tempted, and yet is without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus, very clearly, this is one passage of multiple passages where Jesus is presented as our high priest the great high priest, the one mediator between God and man, as 1 Timothy chapter 2, the first six verses make that very clear. There is one God, one Savior of all, one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. That's what's presented in Scripture. You want somebody to go before God the Father and you because you know if you read the Bible, and even if you don't read the Bible, you know because of the things that you do and the, that you shouldn't do and the things that you don't do that you should do, you know that we have this problem called sin. It's rebellion against God. We sin by the things we do, and we sin by the things that we don't do. Sins of commission and sins of omission. But here, in the book of Hebrews... Oh, if only the chief priests, if only the priests, if only the scribes understood that they were arguing with the real chief priest, Jesus. If they only understood that they were incensed over the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Look at what Hebrews says. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. That's going to become especially important as we look at another passage of Scripture in a moment. The Son of God, uniquely brought forth, one of a kind, in a way that nobody else is a son or a daughter of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. See, that's the gospel in a nutshell. The Bible says without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sin. We're going to look at that in a future time when we go through our next series, which is going to be in the book of Leviticus. That's a little infomercial there. We're going to go through the book of Leviticus, and you might say, I don't really have any interest in reading about green and red mold. But by the time we're done, you're going to understand that Jesus is all through the book of Leviticus. 
It's in Leviticus where it says, without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sin. All of the Old Testament sacrifices were pointing to the ultimate sacrifice that the writer of Hebrews is actually making clear right here. The ultimate sacrifice is Jesus. We have a great high priest who was tempted in every way, just like you are, just like I am, understands your weaknesses, understands my weaknesses, but yet he was without sin. That's the whole idea. That God loved the world so much, and you're in the world, I'm in the world. God loves you so much that he would send forth his uniquely brought forth son, born of a virgin, to be fully human, to be a one-for-one substitute sacrifice for the sins that you're guilty of, the sins that I'm guilty of. That's right. Glory to God. I love it when people respond to the word of God. And the thing about Jesus is that he was without sin because you couldn't pay the penalty. I can't pay the penalty. Nobody can pay the penalty. That's why the word had to become flesh and live among us for a while. John chapter one makes that very clear. The word which always existed in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And then in verse 14 of John chapter one, and the word became flesh and lived among us for a while. Jesus who always existed, the son always existed, came into this world born through Mary so that he could take the place that you deserved, that I deserved, but was unwilling and unable to pay. And what is being presented here, did you notice the words mercy and grace in Hebrews? It's so important to understand how these two words work together and how they are different and they are distinct. Mercy and grace. That's what we receive when we give our lives to Jesus Christ. Look at Hebrews chapter four, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Every single one of us needs mercy. Every single one of us needs grace. Mercy, right here, mercy is when God withholds from us something that we deserve. That's what mercy is. When God does not give us something that we should get, we deserve to go into an eternity separated from God. The second death spoken of in Revelation chapter 20, the end of the book of Revelation and the end of chapter 20 talks about the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, they went into the lake of fire prepared for the devil and his angels, which is the second death. And it is not annihilation. It is not where you no longer exist. You will exist day and night in an eternity knowing that you're separated from God, never having the ability to repent and to accept him as Savior. And if that makes you uncomfortable, then that's a good thing. You again, again, you don't have to go there. You accept God's way out through Jesus Christ. 
So what we deserve, every single one of us deserves this. Every single one of us deserves because we are related to Adam. Sin came into the world through Adam. We're part of the human race. Every single one of us deserves to go into an eternity separate from God. But the mercy of God manifests through what he did, God the Father did, through the Son, our great high priest, is when God does not give us what we really deserve. That is the mercy of God, and that is a beautiful, humbling, amazing thing. When a person accepts Jesus as their Savior, when a person accepts Jesus as being the great high priest, when a person accepts that what Jesus did on the cross was done for them, they cross over from death and what would be an eternal separation from God the Father to life. God extends mercy. He gives us mercy. Doesn't give us what we deserve. That's what mercy is. God not giving us what we deserve. But mercy is not the same as grace and grace is not the same as mercy, although they go hand in glove. Grace is when God gives us something good that we don't deserve. Grace is when God gives us something good that we don't deserve. So not only did God give us mercy, not only does God give us mercy through what Jesus did on the cross and personal faith in him by not sending us into an eternity separate from him, the second death, but God also gives us through grace, undeserved favor. He gives us the idea, this is absolutely mind-blowing, the idea of being adopted as a son or a daughter. In the first century, when that terminology was used, the idea of being adopted, see, we might even today not really understand the significance of adoption. In the first century, when somebody was adopted, the law was such that when you were adopted or when you adopted somebody, that child, that boy, that girl, would literally have the same rights and the privileges as if they were naturally born from the parents. Literally no distinction whatsoever. You were forbidden from making any type of a distinction legally. It is a legal proclamation where the adopted child had the same legal rights as a physically born child would have. Now, this is what God has done for us spiritually in Christ. He has adopted us as sons and daughters. Was he obligated to do that? No. He wasn't obligated to extend mercy to us. But God didn't stop at mercy. He also went above and beyond and gave us undeserved favor, a privileged position through the grace, that's what that word means, through his grace to call us as his adopted son, his adopted daughter. Because God himself, he couldn't have natural children. God doesn't give birth to natural children in and of himself. So that the only thing that God the Father could have done, the most beautiful thing that God the Father could have done is have it so that it were as if it were the same thing, as if he had naturally born children, as if you were God's naturally born child. That's what adoption is legally. That is the grace of God. And not only that, God gives us charisma. You didn't know that you were so charismatic, did you? He gives us charismata. Grace gifts, undeserved gifts. 
every spiritual gift that a believer has, whether you have one or two or three or more, is an undeserved gift of God. That he says here, it's yours because of my undeserved favor that I'm not obligated to give you anything, but I'm going to do it because I want to build up the body. Romans chapter 12 makes that very clear, that God gives spiritual gifts to build up the body. Some of us have the gift of mercy. Some of us have a gift of service. Some of us have a gift of teaching or preaching. Some of us have a gift of administration. Some of us have gifts of leadership. Some of us have one gift or two gifts or three gifts or four gifts, whatever the case might be. You have nothing to do with it. You have nothing to do with it. Nothing. That's why it's called charismata. It's called a grace gift an undeserved gift of God that he chose to give you before the foundation of the world, before the beginning of time, way before your birthday. And by the way, if you weren't even born, how could you possibly have anything to do with it? And so through this great high priest who was without sin, who is able to bear every one of our weaknesses, we have received mercy and grace that makes me want to shout right now. That's how good our high priest is. That's how good our Jesus is. That's how good our father is that he would give to us what we didn't even realize we needed to be able to give him glory and to live in light of our created potential. You were created for a purpose. I was created for a purpose. We were created for a purpose to glorify almighty God and God has given us everything by withholding from us what we deserve through mercy and by giving to us what we need through grace. He's given us everything we need for life and godliness. I should just stop right there. But we're not done yet. These chief priests and priests, leaders of the nation of Israel, arguing with the real high priest. All the Gospels present Jesus' favorite place for teaching and preaching. In the temple area when he was in Jerusalem, Jesus was either out of his mind or going out of his way. And by now you might be beginning to form a conclusion about that on what you believe. Was he out of his mind or was he going out of his way? Look with me at Mark's gospel in Mark chapter 12. This is the parallel account to the widow who outdid all the worshipers by giving far more, by giving far less. Mark chapter 12, verse 41, he, Jesus, sat down opposite the treasury and watched people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and the poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. That would be the modern-day equivalent. He called his disciples to him and said to them, truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box, for they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, and she had to live on, all she had to live on. Look at that. Don't you dare think that the amount that you want to give to God is insignificant because you don't have much to give to God. Jesus levels the playing field. He says, it's not how much you give, it's what you give to me out of what I've given to you. 
We're all about comparing what we give and feeling self-justified because of the amount that we give. And now that it's coming up on tax time, we might feel convicted or we might feel conflicted. We might feel good or bad about how much we get to deduct based on how much we've given. But the truth is, this woman sets an example of what it's like to be an extravagant worshiper. She gave so little comparison. And yet she gave so much in comparison. Jesus said, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. Many of us have just been set free just by looking at the word of God just in this particular passage. If you wait until you've got a lot of money to give to God, you missed the whole point. It's not for you, it's not for me, it's not for anybody to call as insignificant whatever it is that you're giving to God if it's significant. This woman put in all she had to live on and she didn't have very much to live on. A penny is not a whole lot to live on and yet, by God's means of arithmetic, she gave more than all the others who had more. And you can do that too. Give your penny to God. This woman trusted, or maybe the others didn't really trust. You know, there's a direct correlation between worship and trust. And this woman teaches us. Do you trust God? Do you have saving faith? Do you have the faith that can move a mountain? If you have just the faith of a mustard seed, just the faith of a penny, you can honor God, you can glorify God, and you can stop comparing your walk with God to the walk that somebody else might have with God or the walk that you think other people might have for God. I bet many people in that day thought they were doing a great service to God by giving what they gave, and Jesus comes up and Reigns on the parade. Did you notice Jesus sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into their offering box? This is a real place where the temple treasury was. It was where the court of women was in the temple area. And we'll get there in just a moment. But Mark is presenting this as an actual location. This really happened. Jesus sat there and he watched in the temple area. It's one of the areas where Jesus taught, one of the areas where Jesus preached. And then we get to John chapter 10. Look with me at John chapter 10, verse 22. And we come to one of the most significant passages of Scripture as it pertains to Jesus being out of his mind or going out of his way. Was Jesus out of his mind or was he going out of his way to say the things he said where he said those things? And here's another such instance of Jesus being intentional to say the right word at the right time to have maximum impact so that he could not be misunderstood at all in John chapter 10, verse 22. At that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter. And Jesus was walking where? 
in the temple, in the colonnade of Solomon, which will become increasingly important as we continue along today. Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, if you are the anointed one, if you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. This is huge what they're doing, and it's huge how Jesus answers them. There are people today who say Jesus never claimed to be God. Why didn't Jesus come right out and say it. Well, you Gentiles don't understand. We Gentiles don't understand. Jesus spoke in the language of the people. Remember, the gospel is for the Jew first and then for the Gentile. Jesus is in the temple area in Solomon's colonnade. And they come up to him and they say, listen, this is really what they're saying. We know that the Jew, who's the Messiah? We know that the Messiah is going to perform many miraculous signs and wonders, and you've done that. We know that the Messiah, the anointed one, the appointed one, the one prophesied in the Old Testament scriptures, we've seen you do certain things that seem to make us sit up and take notice, but would you please stop with the parables? Would you please come out and tell us very clearly, are you the one? Would you just say it? Are you the anointed and appointed chosen one, the Messiah, the Savior, the Deliverer? Now, Jesus is either out of his mind or he's going out of his way in how he answers. He answers the Jews who are asking him in the language that the Jews who asked him would understand and connect the dots. Are you ready? Verse 25, Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you're not part of my flock. Are you kidding me, Jesus? You're talking to Jewish people, and you're telling the Jewish people that they're not part of God's flock? Are you out of your mind? Or are you going out of your way? God is no respecter of persons. You need to have saving faith in Jesus, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, man, woman, boy, or girl. God's provided the escape through Jesus. You do not believe because you're not part of my flock. Verse 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Audacious for Jesus to be referring to himself now as if he is the chief cook and bottle washer, but he was and he is the high priest. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. <gasps> the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, it's not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. This Jew, Jesus of Nazareth, is speaking in a language that the Jew would understand, that his Jewish audience would understand. We know what's required in the Old Testament. You know, Jesus, what's required in the Old Testament. For you to say, I and the Father are one, you're either out of your mind or you're going out of your way. To make sure that the gospel is understood by the Jew first, 
right in this temple area. So the Jews answered him, verse 33, it is not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, is is it not written in your law? I said, you are gods with a lowercase g. This is where liberal interpreters say, well, Jesus is now backpedaling. Jesus is now coming down off the high horse and easing the significance, but you've got to keep reading the account. That's not what he's doing at all. Is it not written in your law, I said, you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the father consecrated, referring to himself, and sent into the world, you're blaspheming because I said I am the son of God? If I'm not doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I am in the father. He's not backing down at all. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. This would have been a perfect opportunity for Jesus to say, well, fellas, you know what? Thank you for reminding me of what the Old Testament teaches about blasphemy. Thank you for reminding me that I should have never said, I and the Father are one. Thank you so much. Now I deserve to be stoned because even if he apologized at that point, he still should have been stoned. Jesus puts the pedal to the metal and says, why do you have such a hard time with this? What about the one that God set apart as his uniquely brought forth son, the son of God. I'm not backing down from saying I and the father are one. I said what I meant and I meant what I said. Jesus said what he meant, meant what he said, says what he means, means what he says. He was either out of his mind or he was going out of his way for the people in his day to very clearly understand what he was saying. To be able to connect the dots and understand who he was in Mark chapter 14. In Mark chapter 14, verse 43, look with me here. Again, another example of Jesus making it to practice day after day to teach and preach, to go out of his way, to go into the temple so that the Jews would understand, yes, you're Messiah, the anointed one, the appointed one, the one prophesied about in the Old Testament is here. Look with me at Mark chapter 14, verse 43. Immediately, Mark 14, 43, Immediately while he was still speaking, Judas, the backstabber, Judas came, one of the 12, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. One of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? In other words, you know that I've never stolen. I've never been accused of robbing anything. Is this why you needed all this weaponry? 
day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. Common practice was for Jesus to make sure that he taught in the temple area on purpose because he was not at all out of his mind. He was going out of his way. And when you take a look at the layout of the temple and the layout of the Temple Mount area and you begin to look at all the different places where scripture very clearly says Jesus taught and preached and performed miraculous signs and wonders, you cannot conclude that Jesus was out of his mind. You have to conclude that Jesus went out of his way. He went out of his way to make sure the people of his day and the people in our day, the people of any time, would not make any mistake about his identity being the appointed, anointed Savior, the high priest, the one chosen by God the Father to take your sin and mine upon himself on that cross without having any guilt in himself. Let's take a look right now at the temple area. This is a reconstruction here to help us get an appreciation, a model here of what the temple would have looked like in Jesus' day. Herod's temple, which looks pretty grand, pretty spectacular, but it pales in comparison to Solomon's temple. But here it is. This is the temple area. That's the temple itself. That's where the Holy of Holies would have been in there. You Indiana Jones fans, the Ark of the Covenant would have been in there, uh, but it wasn't there in the Holy of Holies during Jesus' ministry. And yet ministry took place. Those who are saying we've got to find the Ark of the Covenant today before anything can happen prophetically, it's not true. You don't need the Ark of the Covenant to be able to rebuild the third temple. Not necessary. But in there was the Holy of Holies. This is the temple area. This is the holy place. And you go forward and you lead into the most holy place. But over here, I want to draw your attention to the Golden Gate not the Golden Gate Bridge, but this would have been, and now it's sealed up, and in front of it, there is right in here now, there's a cemetery that the Muslims built many years ago. And the Muslims built that cemetery because they know a thing or two about the Christian scriptures, about the Bible. There used to be a bridge here that went this way, and this is the Kidron Valley. And over here, down in this area, this would be the Mount of Olives, okay? And there used to be a bridge here. And so when you read John's gospel and it says, Jesus and the disciples crossed the Kidron Valley to the Mount of Olives, that's what they would have done. They would have taken this bridge from the Golden Gate, crossed the bridge, and they would have gone up here to the Mount of Olives. Now, the scriptures say very clearly that when the Messiah returns, when Jesus returns, his feet are going to land on the Mount of Olives, and the Mount of Olives is going to split in two. And then what is Jesus going to do? The Son of Man, the Messiah, he's going to make his way to the Temple Mount area through this gate. See, the Muslims put the, they put the cemetery here because the idea is that no Jew would defile himself by getting close to a dead body. But we know that God is higher and bigger than all of that. Jesus will make his way through the Golden Gate and into the temple and into his rightful place as being the replacement for the Antichrist. He will be the real deal, okay? And so this is a good idea. It gives us a good understanding of the layout of the temple area. This is Solomon's colonnade down here. Solomon's colonnade is here too, all around the periphery. 
all right? And over here, this is the southern area. This is probably where Acts chapter two took place, probably where Acts chapter two took place on the day of Pentecost. I was there a number of years ago, and there are these mikvah bathing pools, these Jewish bathing pools over here that could have baptized easily thousands of people. So when Peter is preaching his famous sermon in Acts chapter two, and they say, what must we do to be saved? You notice Peter doesn't say, well, first of all, let me explain to you about water baptism. You see, it's... He doesn't do that because there are God-fearing Jews who would have been baptized anyway when they came into Jerusalem up to these southern steps, the southern mount. They would have gone in this way. They would have intentionally... Uh, been getting baptized and being baptized into the name of a rabbi of whose school of Judaism they adhered to. So to be baptized into the name of the rabbi who had been crucified, Jesus, would have been a huge deal. So there are plenty of bathing pools on this area right in here that a lot of people could have been baptized, thousands with no problem. So that's probably where that happened. It's also the area where Jesus would have overturned the tables of the money changers in this area because people would have come up to that part of the temple and they're not carrying around with them a goat or a sheep or a, or a cow or a bull or a dove or a pigeon or even grain or a drink offering. They're not carrying all that stuff. They would come to the temple area and they would convert their money for whatever the Old Testament sacrifice required, whatever the Old Testament called for, they would take that money, give it to the money changers. Then the person would be able to get the animal or the grain or the drink for whatever it was to fulfill the Old Testament law, to fulfill what's in the scriptures. And again, that's in the book of Leviticus. Again, infomercial, when we go over Leviticus, you'll see Christ in Leviticus when we get there. So this would have been the area. And what the people were doing is they were misusing and abusing what should have been for God. They got detracted and distracted and everything. Instead of um, that being what it was supposed to be for practical purposes, they were misusing the idea of the sacrifice to God. People were making exorbitant amounts of money off of what should have been given for the glory of God. And that's why Jesus, in a premeditated way, made the whip of cords he was premeditatively, can you imagine Jesus? Every day teaching in the temple and being familiar with how people were abusing what should have been used for the worship of God, making an exorbitant amount of money for their own personal gain. You better believe Jesus made a whip of cords. One of those days, Jesus had a problem with epidermis penetratus. It got underneath his skin. And he made a whip of cords and went in there and overturned the tables of the money changers. So Solomon's colonnade around here. And then let's go to another picture here, another diagram from another angle. Here's the Golden Gate, just to help you understand the perspective, what we looked at. Here's the Southern Mount area. Down here is where the Western Wall is, over the embankment, down here on the other side of this wall. That's the Western Wall, or the Wailing Wall. That's the only part of the temple that's remaining, the temple area that was remaining, and that's where the Jews today put their prayers. They write out prayers, and they slip them in between the cracks, and they pray for the coming of the Messiah, and they pray for the rebuilding of the temple. So that's the Western Wall down here. But I want to draw your attention to a few things. Let's look at the next slide. This is the woman's court here. This is where the temple treasury would have been. That's where Jesus was sitting and watching as the people put their money 
into the temple treasury. And notice that Jesus would have taught, he would have preached, he would have interacted there where the women were, which was a huge thing for Jesus, a huge thing for the people on that day, that Jesus would actually be teaching and preaching in the presence of women. Remember when Jesus was teaching at Jacob's well, when he talked to the Samaritan woman? That was a huge no-no. You don't talk and preach and teach to women. At least the tradition had become that way. Jesus was elevating women to their biblical place of honor when he taught in this area, in the women's court where the temple treasury was. Okay, so he helps us understand that Jesus was no respecter of persons. And then we see here the court of Israel. Let's go to that next slide. The court of Israel, right here is the court of Israel. That's where Jesus would have had those discussions, at least some of them, with the Pharisees. And the priests and chief priests, can you hear my contempt in my voice? Some of that stuff would have happened right there in the court of Israel. See, there's a progression here that you go from the outside in. You make your way the women's, through the women's court and then to the court of Israel, of the Jews, where the Jewish people would be hanging out. And then the priest goes in here. There's an altar here in the holy place. And then only the high priest gets to go into the most holy place or the holy of holies. So there you have the women's court, the court of Israel. And then over here, let's go to the next slide. Solomon's porch. There's a helping you understand. That's what we read in John chapter 10 when Jesus was teaching in Solomon's porch. And then over here, the next slide. And over here, the court of the Gentiles. This is where the non-Jewish people would have been uh, hanging out and the people who were interested in Israel's Messiah, the people who were, see what God did, he provided a testimony right in the midst of all the people. The Gentiles were by no means excluded. They just weren't able to go into where the Jews went right in here or the, the inner part right here, but they could be hanging out on the outside and guess what they would have done? They would have seen people bringing in the animal sacrifices. They would have heard Jesus teaching and preaching because he did that in Solomon's colonnade out here and in the court where the Gentiles were. They would have been hearing the gospel all along. They would have been seeing the gospel. They would have seen the gospel demonstrated through the Old Testament sacrificial system so that when they see Jesus performing miraculous signs and wonders and drawing attention to himself, they would say, hey, God meant what he said. He would provide a savior from among the Jewish people. And so what we see, the beauty of this, the beauty of this is that we see even in the construction of the temple area, how God has given the gospel to all people everywhere. He's given it to the women. He's given it to the Jews. He's given it to the Gentiles. We understand very clearly that this great high priest is for everybody everywhere. That there's not one sin, not one sin that Jesus isn't big enough to save. And by the way, Jesus wasn't out of his mind at all. He went out of his way, even in where he taught, even in where he preached in the temple area to make sure that nobody was excluded from the mercy and the grace of God. You've been listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. If you enjoyed this message, you'll love Michael Anthony's Courage Matters Podcast, where he focuses on leadership, relationships, and world events. To learn more, visit CourageMatters.com or download the free Courage Matters app. Interested in requesting Michael for an interview, guest appearance, 
or as a keynote speaker for your event? Click the Invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on CourageMatters.com. In the meantime, keep looking up. There's no place else worth looking. <laughs>